We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I have the delight this morning of talking to Dr. Uchenna Osai. Did I do pretty good on that? Oh, you did perfect. All right. Perfect. Well, UC, as most of the world likes to know her, um, UC, tell us a little bit about your academic journey, and how it's led you to where you're at today. Well, first, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to be on your amazing podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you and your guests today. So thank you. Gosh, okay, how did I start my journey? Oh, how far back do you want me to go? I mean, would you like college? Uh, Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) Let's start at undergrad and bring us up to speed. Okay, so went to Boston University. And I actually was in their six-year DPT program for the first semester. And then I, and then I was like, nah, I was really interested in partying <laughs> and not studying. Same, so I same. Said, I hear you. I said, oh, I don't know if this is for me right now. So I, I you know, opted to do a rehab counseling degree, which was great. Really, really appreciated the skills I got from there. And then I did clinical research at MassGen. Um, for a couple of years in Boston. And then I applied to DPT school, which is where I I went to University of Illinois, Chicago. And the only reason I wanted to be a PT was to do pelvic health. And I knew that was my path when I was 16. And so, you know, the minute I started the PT program, I was asking my mentors, hey, you know, I want to do public health. I want to do public health. And um, and so I I did a lot of um, research experiences and I did a fellowship. I did the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship that helped train me more on like public health interventions, um, how to do, you know, community health interventions, how to make them sustainable, and kind of fusing that with PT. Because while I was in PT school, I thought to myself, there's more to the health piece that I wanted to learn that I knew wasn't necessarily in the PT curriculum. And so one of my mentors, Dr. Demetra John, she did, she was a PT, a PT, but she also did her PhD in public health. So she linked me up with um, this Urban Allied Health Academy that UIC had. And, um, and then I did the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship. And so that actually really helped to kind of introduce me to, you know, transgender health, LGBTQ health, like kind of why, kind of understanding the whys of all the health disparities and what that actually meant. And then I went and did my residency in uh, women's health and movement sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. 
And after that, I practiced for a few years and then I went back to do my sexual health certification in sexuality education and counseling at the University of Michigan. And so now um, I am assistant professor at the University of Texas in Austin at Dell Medical School in the Department of Women's Health. I do practice pelvic PT. I'm the pelvic health manager at UT Health Austin for the Women Department of Women's Health. And I'm adjunct faculty at the University of Michigan sexual counseling program. And then of course, founder of UC Logic. So that's, that's Wait that. The resume, young lady. I mean, you are uh, impressive. I don't think that many people know what they want to do at the age of 16, let alone have this big picture focus on bringing in some of the pieces from all over the place. You know, you really did a great job of crafting a holistic approach to pelvic health, not just like, okay, I want to be a pelvic health PT, like, great. Uh, it I really looks to me like there's so much biopsychosocial that you've brought in with all these other things that you, you pursued. Tell me a little bit about, um, let's say th there's uh, some PT students that are in PT school now, they're interested in pelvic health. What are some of the other pieces they need to start thinking about uh, to make them the most well-rounded uh, pelvic health PT that they can be? What are some things that they need to consider beyond just pelvic health physical therapy? Well, I think this is for all students, right? Mm -hmm. I think this would be mm -hmm. a conversation for all students. You know, what do you want to add? What do you want to yeah. bring to it? For me, it was just the fact that I knew that health wasn't just about, like I say this all the time when I talk or do lectures, it's not just about pulling yourself up from the bootstraps mentality. It's not that biomedical construct. It's looking at social determinants of health and social determinants of equity and what that means, right? We can be great manual therapists. We can be great movement science specialists. We can be you know, great pain advocates, but if we don't understand those components, we're actually completely missing the boat and putting a large band-aid on it. That actually has to be foundational learning for everyone. Um, and everyone's a little different. So, you know, some people want to go the path that I did where you do all these fellowships on top of PT school, which is, you know, was a special experience, you know, it wasn't easy, um, you know, or some people may be more learning, they may want to read books more, or they may just get straight up mentorship. But I do think that has always been the philosophy of my practice from the get. I've, I've been speaking on this for years. So when this year came around with everything that happened with George Floyd, the Amy Coopers of the world, Breonna Taylor, COVID, um, I, didn't, it, I didn't have to shift anything. I just kind of kept going on with my UC swagger and just kept it real and said, hey, we've been, I've been flapping my gums about this for years. So... <laughs> <laughs> there you it's amazing. It. Yeah, it's amazing how that works out, right? When uh, yeah. when you're foundationally rooted in the truth and, and all that is good and trying to push the needle forward, how it all just kind of catches up and you can keep speaking your truth, you know? Absolutely. Well, you see, t tell us a little bit about... I, I want to take this in a in a two step manner here. First, sure. talk talk a little bit about the sexual counseling certification. Sure. Let's start there and talk about that piece of the puzzle and what that looks like. Absolutely, and I'll start as uh, the perspective that I had when I was a resident, right? So you know, you're a resident, you're you're doing the grand hustle, you're seeing patients, you're learning, you're doing all of it. But one of the things that I asked my mentors was. You know, I really, I'm, I was seeing all these male patients and I was seeing all these younger patients and 
I, I didn't really have the, the skill in terms of really understanding their sexual function and how do I help address this because that's a piece that wasn't that I saw missing. And it wasn't just PT missing. It was missing in kind of just the healthcare model in general. And, you know, I said, okay, I need to get the didactics on this. I need to, but then I also need the skill on how do I inquire? And I, I say this because I say, you know, cisgender men and adolescents because that I, I wasn't a cisgender male. <laughs> I was no longer an adolescent. So I didn't have the, you know, just life experience. And I said to my, I said to, you know, my mentors, what, what can I do? So they, they did the best that they could, but then, you know, I took some courses through Herman and Wallace. Wallace. I took a sex counseling course or sexual interviewing course that was taught by Dr. Heather Howard and Dr. Holly Herman back in, I think it was 2012. I think I took it. And then, you know, they taught you about sexual interviewing and I didn't really understand the difference between sex therapy, counseling, and sex education. And I'll explain that in a second. So I saw the University of Michigan program a year later, but I, I wasn't quite ready. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it. So a few years more of practice, I finally did it. And when I called them about the program, I said, I didn't know the difference between a counselor and a therapist. <laughs> I didn't. And they basically said, oh, a sex therapist is a mental health provider. And I said, oh, okay, great. So they're the like, yeah, they said they're the ones who do psychotherapy. A counselor is literally any everyone else, right? And a counselor is going to do, you know, they they go through the model with sex therapy and counseling and education, the implicit model. So P is permission, LI is limited information, um, you know, SS is specific suggestions, and the IT is intensive therapy. So the sex counselor is going to be doing the permission, limited information, specific suggestions, just like we do as PTs with everything that we have. And then if the patient or a client isn't progressing, or we find that those specific suggestions, all that we give isn't helping them to where they need to go, then you say, you know what, I think you need to work with the sex therapist. Right. So it's almost like the counselor can be the bridge, because I think a lot of times for some people, you know, sending them to sex therapy, they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't need all that. But actually one or two sessions with the sex counselor can really help them understand, oh, yeah, I actually do. Oh, you know what, if this is just an educational deficit. Great. I just need this information. Awesome. Thank you. That actually solves my problem. Let's uh, let's dive a little deeper into that. Then uh, you brought something up two things actually that I think are really good. One, physical therapists generally have a really good way about bridging the gap between us and other providers. We know when to, you know, refer out when it's above our pay grade. So I think it's a, it's a really nice fit. But then you said something too there at the end about how it's just really an educational session to, to kind of let them know about what's going on. Let's talk a little bit deeper uh, about that. Let's talk about how you go about educating patients, like what you're having to deal with when you're educating them about sex and sexual dysfunction and, and things like that, because it, it is it can be a touchy subject sometimes. Absolutely. So, so what does that look like? Well, I think that, you know, what it first looks like is, number one, I also want to make the disclaimer that I am a pelvic PT. So this is where pelvic PTs are even better suited <laughs> all PTs to do this. I have, you know, 45 minutes to an hour with this patient. I, I, you know, we're talking about genital pelvic floor issues anyway. So it's a perfect segue um, for me to discuss that with them. Um, when we're thinking about education, you also have to think about our biases. So we talk about implicit bias 
all the time that, but we talk about in the context of racism, prejudice and all of that, but we also have to think of implicit bias as, as sexual bias. How we were taught, how we were raised, how we look at sex, def, we have biases. We have biases in how we would bring that to a patient. And if you're not aware of that bias, if you're not understanding where your values are and where your limits are, you, you should not be counseling patients on this. And so part of the count of the certification program was they go, they help you work through that. You have to do something called a SAR, which is a sexual attitude reassessment. It's like a three-day course, takes for it's very intense, but you really kind of tease out, oh wow, I didn't realize I had that bias. Okay, that's good to know. Now I know where to place it. So with the education session with the patient is really about, hey, you know, are you sexually active? You know. Talk to me about your sex life. Are you having difficulty achieving orgasms? Are you having urination with this? Are you happy? All those questions. And then sometimes patients will ask, well, why are you asking me this? And I, I tell them point blank, you know, your sexual health is an indicator of your overall health. Yeah, I mean, people it's an activity of daily living, right? It is an ADL. So, so if yeah. people have a sexual dysfunction, they do not view themselves as healthy people. And that is very, very important. You know, even if you're just screening that with, you know, a modified oswestry or something like that, that's still giving it validation in that, in that, in that screen. And so then the education can start with simply that. And then I take that opportunity to talk to them about the biopsychosocial model. So I don't just jump into sexy time, right? I call it sexy time. I, I jump into re-educating them because even though us as educators, students, providers, we understand the biopsychosocial model, at least all of us should. Our patients don't get that. They don't, they don't get it. They're not reading research articles about this. They're not reading textbooks about this. They're not listening to podcasts about this. We have to educate them about that model because they're still in that biomedical mindset that we know to be flawed. And I'm not saying the biopsychosocial model is perfect either, but that's a much better way to get the patients to look at their sexual health. And then you can go back into kind of dispelling myths for them, right? Cause that myth, myth busting is huge when it comes to sex huge. And I think that, you know, over the years, as I've acquired more knowledge and now, you know, work, you know, am the person who creates this content for, for people in the academic setting and in the community-based setting, you know, it's really fascinating how I spend most of my time just telling people, no, that's categorically untrue. Yeah. There's so much, and, and PTs have to do this as well, unfortunately, I think yeah. in a lot of pain, but almost uneducating them and taking them back a few steps to say, hey, no, that's not exactly right. Maybe let's look at this. And it's, it's a tough, you know, it's a tough uh, act to balance because you don't want to discredit any of your, you know, colleagues or anything like that. But at the same time, you have to get the, to the root of the problem, the overall truth and say, this is what we know. Let's work from that, you know, a new, yeah. a new starting point. Speaking of our colleagues, let's talk a little bit about how you go about and some of the things that you see in education when it comes to educating other healthcare clinicians. What are you having to work through? What are some things that you're having to deal with? Maybe some knowledge deficits. Uh, you know, what, what are you having to see when you're educating healthcare providers regarding sex and what we're having to deal with on a daily basis? You know, that's a, that's a great question because I do it in different scales or, or different settings, you know, where when I'm teaching at University of Michigan, all those people, right, all those people taking, doing the certification, they're from all disciplines, but they're wholly invested in learning about the sexual health. So it's a completely different experience teaching to that group than it is to teaching a group of med students 
who are tired and are on their eighth Zoom, Zoom lecture of the day, right? You're just like, okay. <laughs> um, and so the experiences, I, I would have to say, you know, now that I've been on faculty in a med school, not a PT school for three years now, I find that the, the, the med school setting is, is more, they have specific objectives and goals around counseling, on sexual issues. Whereas in the PT school setting, I haven't seen that. It's more kind of global, it's kind of lumped into the opt alternative or the extra stuff that they do in the last term for the, the students about to graduate or some, you know, some do it on the front end, but it's kind of, it's very much almost a graduated version of what we got in grade school or in high school. And it's not, you know, I, I I have to say that I, you know, I try to center it on a biopsychosocial framework, but I also have to kind of put it together with like anti-racism stuff or intersectionality stuff as well. You know, so it's almost like we have to do everything in one lecture versus it being, you know, kind of sequential and built upon over the years of education. That's a, a good segue into this next question here, but let's talk a little bit about diversity in the world of mm. sex and sexual health. Sure. Um, the last, I don't know, let's call it decade, uh, there's obviously been a lot more opportunity to talk about diversity and differences. And mm -hmm. there's been a, you know, a push toward equality across, you know, every sort of avenue that you can think of here. So yeah. tell me a little bit about some of the issues and the things that you deal with uh, on a daily basis with regards to diversity in the sexual health world. Uh, there's got to be just a ton out there that you're, you're seeing these days. Well, you know, man, that's, I, I apologize for the pause, because it's a great question. I just don't know where to start. Yes, no. And and, and, and that's why, like I said, it to it's, me, it's mind-blowing how much we've progressed in just the last decade. You yeah. Know, I mean, to me, seems like there now is so much diversity that it's got to be, you know, brought up. It's got to be put on the table. We've got to start normalizing everybody's opinions and, and values and viewpoints well, you know, it, it has to kind of be in terms of what do we define as diversity? And, and I think that when we talk about um, gender, uh, race, you know, sexual orientation, things like that, I think that the, the research, the discussions have been happening for decades. When you look at the research and when I put together, you know, a lot of my lectures, you know, I, I, it's not that I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not hard for me to find information on the impact of minority stress. And I think that's important. That's an important thing to, for us to talk about because we don't see that a lot in the curriculum. We hear about disparities and everyone's like, oh, it's because like people of color and black people and you know, transgender people are poor and they don't have as much education. And that's just not true. Though we need to understand that the systems were built for inequitable distribution of resources, which influences how one is able to fulfill, pull themselves up from the bootstraps and the experience of being a minority in this country. And I'm saying minority because it's, it's fitting in this setting, a non cisgender straight white man is the stress is real. And those stressors can be overt dealing with police or it can be, you know, 
covert, where it's almost being on the sidelines, observing the abuse and the disrespect that people deal with, or the concept of professionalism in the workplace setting is rooted in white supremacy and those beliefs. And so, and, and I say white supremacy in terms of like, not only just race, but also ableism, also sex, you know, and gender, like those, those are intersecting components that actually take a toll on people's health. So then when we look at it from that framework and then you, it, you know, pull out the sexual health component, it's, it's very, very interesting because culturally, um, there are cultural influences in how a person expresses themselves sexually, their cultural experience and how someone brings up sexual problems. And so, you know, I, I always tell people that it actually starts from kind of understanding the unique, the intersect, the identity of the patient and the individuals in which you're counseling or you're with, like understanding, okay, these are the identities they have, and then understand that they have a unique minority stress and then whatever, and then also think of the systemic <laughs> factors that they have to manage, whether or not they are conscious of it or not. And then, and then your intervention happens in that context versus we are the world, we are the same. We are the world, we're just not the same. And there are systems that are in place that make sure that we are not the same. And that's not me, you know, kind of pointing my finger at anyone. I'm just saying that's actually a fact. Yeah. I think that I don't even know that I realize that dealing with such a delicate topic such as sex also had this many underpinnings and underlayers that you've got to take into account to be a really good, not even necessarily good, but really helpful sexual therapist, pelvic therapist. You know, when you're, when you're dealing with this stuff right off the bat, you already think it's kind of sensitive, but then, like you said, bringing in those other layers, uh, you know, of the systemic disadvantages of the stresses and the pressures. And, you know, it, it really makes it quite the complex web that we kind of have to unweave, so to speak, to, to really get down to the root and help these patients. So I, I appreciate your, your take on that, because like I said, I don't even know that I realized it, that it was that complex. It you is, know? but it, it's also, it, like I said, it all comes back down to education, right? For some people, they just may say, hey, I have difficulty achieving orgasm, and that's really distressing to me. And someone might say, oh yeah, I never achieved orgasm, but I'm not distressed. It's a level of distress that the patient is expressing to you that needs to, <laughs> we also need to understand that as well. Right, right. Uh, you know, and they may, they might be coming from intersection, intersecting identities and they're like, no, I'm cool. <laughs> you know, so, but, <laughs> but you still, this still needs to be something that you are aware of that your fingers on that pulse. Um, because I think honestly this year um, for a lot of my black patients, I've had to ask them, you all right? What's going on with you? Yeah. I, every single last one of them have said, yes, this is, this is affecting me. Every single last one of them. And none of their healthcare providers have asked except for me. Now I am a black woman with a mohawk and like, you know, typically makeup and well, they can't see it because it's covered in a face mask and shield, right. but, <laughs> but you know, like I, I present in a way where like they, they, feel more comfortable communicating that to me, but it's still important that we ask our patients, especially when larger things are happening in the world that yeah. particularly impact them, that we inquire about that. Well, and that's just such a simple step to take for any clinician. It's like taking vital signs, right? Right. It's just something that you can start any eval off with, 
you know, it's, it's a pretty simple ask. And we preach that, you know, we, we got to do more listening and, and just shut up and let the patient do the talking because they'll lead you to the answers, you know, and that's a good way to, to break the ice and just start the conversation. Like, Hey, I'm going to ask how you are. I'd like you to let me know. Let's yeah. start there and just sit back and, you know, let them, let them unfold. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but when it comes to education being such an important part of this, uh, of, of sex and sexual health in general, what are you seeing currently in a lot of the PT schools or healthcare schools uh, when it comes to sex? And what are some things that you would like to see, you know, implemented from a, from a bigger picture, like a 30,000 foot view? Oh, they should start talking about it from the get. That should be implemented in year one, graduated to more elevated topics year two. And then, you know, ultimate topics usually. Yeah. <laughs> I think it should be it should be written into the curriculum. And it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be separate either. You can discuss, you know, musculoskeletal health and sexual health. Like that can be fused. You can yeah. talk about that in terms of movement, all of that. They can be, you know, that can be discussed. You know, and, and also talking about intersectionality early on, not at the tail end. These students should know about social determinants of equity and social determinants of health. They should understand that they should be able to kind of roll that off to you, just like they could do a manual <laughs> muscle test. Right, right, right. That like that should be second nature to them. Because when it's second nature to them, then we know that it's in it's their knee jerk. That's their gonna be their knee jerk. That's going to influence their clinical reasoning because it should. Yeah. And I I don't know. I mean, obviously I've been out 15 years now. So, you know, I've been doing it a little while, but I didn't have a lot of that when I went through school and it took me going to conferences and reading research articles and talking with people that I respected and that, you know, I I followed online and social media, thankfully has, has brought a lot of this stuff to light. So, you know, it's, for me, it's been a really good source of, of learning and, and educating myself. I think that if it's important enough though, you should find ways to weave it into your curriculum. You know, if there's things that you're truly interested in, you want your students to know about, you know, if you don't have the time, then you've got to find ways to just naturally interweave it. That's the only way it's going to get across. Absolutely. You know? I think it's the same principle too with like companies, right? So a lot of companies, you know, kind of were flipped on their backs this year. And the ones that are actually going to survive this to truly that they'll see the growth, they're the ones that not only put out the statements, but they have a line item in their budget (laughs) for this. That means that it's that they care about it enough to where they're going to put their money behind the value that they say they have. And I think that's also an important thing too. Yeah, that's, that's when you know it's important, right? When there's money budgeted for it, then we know exactly. this must be important. This must be real. <laughs> this is actually a true company yeah. value. <laughs> yep. Well, you see, like I said, it's been an absolute pleasure following your journey online and you're, you're up to a lot of cool things lately. You've got some really neat initiatives and stuff going on and courses. So tell us a little bit about that. What have you been cooking up lately? Absolutely. So last uh, summer, I launched a course, an anti-racism course for healthcare providers. It's called Intersections of Racism and Power, Healthcare Redefined. And it's a six-hour course. And if you're in the state of Texas, you get CE, CE credits for that. So yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> so that's that course has, I'm launching uh, my next course in early February. So it should be, yeah, it's going to be February 6th. 
yeah, so I'm excited. So this will be the fifth cohort that I've done and it's, it's been a great success. And so please join me. Awesome. And then I created late last year, uh, a new initiative I've been thinking about for a while. It's called Woke is the New Sexy. And it's, it's a platform on my UC Logic website where I've categorized sexual health from an intersectional framework. So it's from a social justice framework, but then also just simple topics. So it has everything from, you know, pregnancy and postpartum to, you know, intersectionality to pleasure and sexual shame. And basically I, it comes with a free workbook. So it helps you kind of work through things, but then it just basically populates all of the content that I've done over the past four years into like a nice pretty bow. And what I like it, it's a great starter kit. It's hundred percent free. It's a great resource for patients who just need to get started on something and they're not really sure where to go, you know, and it also has that great workbook guide to help them through each, all the topics or just one of the topics, whatever works for them. So I'm really excited about that. Awesome. And that, is that like a, um, a reference that you can give out to patients for uh, other healthcare yeah. providers? Oh yeah, awesome. absolutely. So if patients saying, I want to know more about sex postpartum or I, you know, Hey, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a pe I'm a penis owner. I'm a dude. And I have some questions about erectile dysfunction. Well, click there, you know, and it's, it's really, I tried to make it as, you know, digestible and as easy as possible, all stuff. And it comes, it has, you know, not just my videos, but articles I've written, podcasts I've done that talk about certain specific issues. So it's, it's, I'm really excited. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you see, we end every podcast with this one question that we ask all of our guests and if you could change anything in higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what would you change? Ooh, if you've I could got, change anything in higher education. Yep, you've got, uh, you've got one thing that you can change. What's the biggest problem you're seeing in, in graduate school and, and healthcare schools? What's the biggest issue out there and, and what would you change about it? How would you change it? I think every single person who's in a leadership position in academia needs to take a six month training in anti-racism and to be, and they need, and I think they all need management and conflict management skill training. I like you know, that one. The leaders make the experience and I've seen that firsthand. Better trained leaders, better, better outcomes. Yeah, I've had a couple of discussions lately with some colleagues about leadership in healthcare, and I feel like this year was a possible year for healthcare to shine, and I don't think that it really did. And I don't think it was necessarily their fault. I think there were a lot of things working against them, but but I just feel like there seems like a little bit of a lack in leadership when it comes yeah. to, to healthcare in general right now. And I think this, to me, like, you know, APTA's Vision 2020 or whatever, right? Let's look at the next decade, right. Vision 2030. Right. Uh, I think leadership has to be at the forefront of that. I think we need to start, you know, uh, leaning a little bit on our, our thought leaders and our influencers, if you will, you know, for, for social media or whatever. I think there's a lot of really brilliant people out there doing really brilliant things, much like yourself. And I think that we need to make sure we're giving them the platform uh, and the opportunity to get their voice out there and, and really, you know, shine because 
like I said, it just felt like uh, this was a little bit of a swing and a miss year for for healthcare leadership. So hopefully that'll that'll be on the on the verge. But UC, thank you so much for your time and for coming on and talking with us today. It was so great to finally catch up with you and, and do this interview. Where can people find you if they want to follow up with you? They have questions or they just want to know more about your uh, your programs or what you're doing these days. Where's the best place to find you? The best place to find me is on social media at UC Logic, Y-O-U-S-E-E Logic, at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I will also be debuting my TikTok next week. Or Ooh, look forward to that. Wish me luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little scared. And, but then also check me out on my website, www.uclogic.com, or they can email me at info at uclogic.com. Awesome. And we'll drop all those links in the show notes. So they're easy for everyone to find. You see, thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. I'd love to see it. Thank you. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform is a simple low cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.